So if you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. This is actually the uh, first Sunday in Advent on the church calendar. And for those of you that have been around church for a while, uh, you may have some kind of idea of what Advent is. For those of you that have never really experienced what an Advent is all about, uh, let's talk about that for a second. Because you might think that what Advent is about is like, this is where we usher in Christmas season. So Advent's about Santa and, you know, Rudolph and Frosty and Christmas trees and me tripping over the carpet and, you know, all these wonderful things about Christmas lights. But actually, Advent is really about none of those things. It's not even about your best Tennessee Christmas. It's not about, we hope it snows on the 25th. Advent even isn't about, it's not about Mary, it's not about Joseph, it's not about this young couple that she's pregnant and the story of her on a donkey. This isn't about them going into Bethlehem. That's really not what Advent is all about. The word Advent actually is a Latin word that is uh, the word coming uh, or arrival. When we think about Advent, what we're thinking about and what we're spending time considering through the lens of Christ's first coming as we're looking at his promise that he's coming again. So this is a season, believe it or not, it's when we slow down. I know that's so counterculture, isn't it? Because y'all are about to speed it up. And what I'm going to challenge you to do today through Scripture is that you would slow down and not just consider that Christ is coming again, but you would consider your life. Let me try to give an example. When I was in high school, there was this guy that went to our high school who was the school bully. Did you have a school bully in high school? Just that person that was built like a barn. And uh, they knew they were built for a barn, but they did not use their power for good. They used it for evil, you know, just to torment everybody. In fact, this guy's name was Buddy. Just drink it up. I'm not going to tell you his last name because if I did, he'd probably hear this and come find me. But Buddy was just a brutal bully. In fact, you did not want to walk through the hallway and see him coming and be seen. You never wanted to be seen by Buddy. You just wanted to be invisible wallpaper as he goes by. Because if you ever found yourself um, the object of his attention, it was never affection. It would start out as affection. And it would always turn something ugly. Well, one day I was home. I just got home from school and my little brother comes running into the house and slams the door and runs up to me and he says, Buddy is on his way. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He said, everybody at school heard what you said about Buddy. I don't even remember talking about Buddy. And Buddy heard it and he's coming here right now. Get ready. And I panicked. Like I, I remember I was 15. I'm running around the house. Like, what do you do when Buddy's coming? I don't know. Like, I didn't, you know, do, do you, I'd grab the lamp and I grabbed my dad's ashtray. I like, what? I don't know why. I'm just, I'm ready now. And I'm waiting and looking at the door and my little brother's on the floor laughing because he said, I'm just kidding. And that's when I knew what to do with that lamp. You know, <laughs> I, but there was no avoiding it. I mean, if, if you, if you'd have been there, you could not live your life in ignorance that Buddy was coming. Buddy was about to arrive, and when he arrived, he was going to bring carnage with him. You need to get yourself ready. Is that the way we're supposed to be with Christ? Christ is coming. Like I know, if you're new to this and, and church is not your deal, maybe you don't even know Christ, let me tell you one of the things that we believe as Christ followers. Christ is returning, and he's going to make all things new. In fact, 
what Christ says all throughout the scriptures to us, his people, live your life in view of the fact that I'm coming. Don't be deceived. Don't live your life like I'm not coming. Live your life knowing that I am coming. That's a challenge for us. So what does that look like, especially during this Advent season? How do we slow down? How do we reevaluate our lives? <clears throat> and we start Advent season. It's going to seem like a Debbie Downer, but we start Advent season in a very dark place. Because for us to understand that we need that a savior is coming, we need to understand we need a savior. And Jesus was born into a dark world, and that's what we're about to read about now. We're about to read about a king who was dark, we're about to read about uh, his motives were dark, and we're about to read about a massacre of children, which is a hard way to start the Advent season, but it's a place we have to start. So, Molly, are you going to read for me this morning? No? Ah, oh, that's right. Mandy is going to read for me this morning. Matthew chapter 2, she's going to start in verse 1, then she's going to read through verse 8, then she's going to jump to verse 16 uh, through 18. Not that we don't value the rest of those scriptures. We're just trying to prepare ourselves in this Advent season. Okay. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where it, the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the, prophets has what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. From out of you will come a ruler who will be shepherd, who will shepherd my people." Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search and for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Thank you, Manny. Let's pray. Lord, um, I pray that you would wake us up enough to be present and to, uh, Lord, to receive what you have for us through the power of your Holy Spirit. We uh, come, Lord, and uh, we're a little bit afraid of you. We're a little bit afraid of what you want to do in our lives, and um, we're a little bit afraid of what uh, maybe you don't want to do in our lives. 
But I pray that, Lord, today you would have your way with us and let us have the courage to be present with you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The reason I just prayed that prayer is because at the last service, it was like the turkey malaise. Like everybody just was like, you know, Thanksgiving just did them in. So how are y'all doing? Y'all are here? Okay. It's okay not to be here. You know that, all right? It's okay to say, I really wish we could close the service right now and uh, go take a nap out on the couch, but that ain't going to happen, all right? It's okay to have that opinion. Ain't going to happen. But let's talk about this story, and let's try to get ourselves going because this is a crazy story, that Herod was called king of the Jews, and Herod was the king of Jerusalem and Judea, and these magi come rolling in, now, do you know what a magi is? Like some of you might. I mean, you grew, some of you grew up in the church and you have this history of understanding of a magi. But let me tell you, historically, we don't really know what a magi is. It's like a magic man. It's like, you know, an astronomer. And they thought maybe this was a group of guys that came from Persia or maybe Babylon or somewhere. Some even believe that if you remember Daniel in the Old Testament, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, remember the furnace there on the fire, you know? That, that, that Daniel... He was a slave. He was a Jew guy that got brought into slavery in the Babylonian kingdom. And some believe that Daniel rose to power and created this whole order of magi around Judaism. Could be. Who knows? But they come rolling into town and they got their entourage because they're making a scene. These guys have some money. They're looking good. They walk in and they're asking everybody, where is the king of the Jews? And Herod catches wind of this and doesn't like it a bit. Now the story is he meets with them and he goes, yeah, I want to worship Jesus too. Come on, tell me where he is. And they figure out he's not really serious and that he's just manipulating them. They run away from him. He finds out they run away from him. And then he orders the massacre of all the children in Bethlehem. Why would we start Advent here? Well, let's, let's pause for a minute and let's think about Herod. Herod, poor Herod, I mean, really, this guy was born into a very dysfunctional family system. Like his father, uh, who was this guy that was hungry for power, uh, when the Roman Empire came in to Jerusalem and Judea and took over, uh, his father fought for a place in the Roman Empire hierarchy. He was a Jew who actually was willing to become a servant of the Rome, Roman Empire to serve over his fellow Jews. So he's kind of a traitor. So his father, he was born into this family where his father was power hungry. And when he rose to power, he grabbed his two sons and he says, you're going to rise with me. And he forced his two boys into politics and into political service. Well, political service, that's, that's not really what it was. It was dictatorship. And so, uh, in fact, shortly after that happened, his dad was poisoned and executed, like, or he was assassinated. And so him and his brother were the two left to kind of rule over Judea. Then there was this, this uprising, and for a short season, the Romans were pushed out of Judea, and Herod had to run back to Rome to save his life. When he got to Rome, and if you're a historian, uh, or if you like history, he made friends with two characters from history that you may be familiar with, Octavian and Mark Anthony, and Cleopatra. Like that, This was all part of Herod's story, that he kind of got... Uh, buddies with Octavian and then Mark Anthony, and he convinced these two guys uh, when Rome took over Judea again to put him into power. For some reason, they did. They put him back and made him king of Judea. 
and then Octavian and Mark Anthony, if you know your history, they went at war with one another, and there was this big civil war, and Herod had to pick a side, so he picked Mark Anthony. Uh, Mark Anthony lost, and then there's this historical document that talks about him going to Octavian and humbling himself and saying, I chose poorly, you know, please, please forgive me. And so Octavian uh, gave him back the kingdom of Judea, and Cleopatra is a part of that whole, anyway. Fascinating story, go read it. Herod was a brutal guy. Got married, executed her. Why? Because he, he was suspicious that she, he, she was trying to undermine his kingdom. His oldest son executed him because he thought his son was plotting to overthrow him. Second oldest son executed him too because he thought he too was plotting against him. See, for us to understand Herod, we need to understand that everything Herod did was to build his kingdom. Everything Herod did was to protect the kingdom that he built. Everything he did was to support, to gain, and keep power. Everything. In fact, he controlled it all. He was a control freak. Even on his deathbed, he ordered his troops to go and arrest all the most important people from all the villages around Jerusalem and bring them to Jerusalem. And his order was, when I die on this deathbed, go and execute them all so that there will be lots of grieving going on in Jerusalem on the day of my death. Pretty dark. Why was he so afraid of this little baby Jesus? Well, same reason we are. I mean, the same reason we should be. When Jesus was born into this world, it was the declaration that a kingdom has come. And this new kingdom that came was at odds with our kingdom. And here's what's scary about a kingdom that's at odds with our kingdom. When that kingdom is fighting for us, oftentimes it feels like that kingdom is fighting us. When I became a believer, I can tell you that I was 18 and my life was falling apart. There were things that were going drastically wrong in my life and emotionally I was really struggling and trying to figure out how do I get the pieces back together and it felt like everything in my life was coming apart, but it was the kingdom of light that was pushing its way toward me. And the closer the kingdom of light got to me, the more it exposed my need for the kingdom of light and exposed my darkness, which is a painful experience. If you've never had that experience, when the kingdom of light comes in and exposes our need, our need can be painful before the kingdom of light heals us. And if that's true then we have to understand the kingdom of light is coming to do something in our lives. So I read an article a number of years ago about this research lab that was doing a bunch of research and they were using mice as a part of their research. And the mice that they were using, these were mice that were, they were bred in captivity, they were born in captivity. The only life these mice had ever known was the cage. And when they got through with their research, the researchers decided they were gonna set all these mice free. And so they go out in the field that was near their offices and they opened up the cage, thinking that these mice were going to go flying out of the cage and run to the freedom and the generosity of these researchers, giving them their freedom. But none of the mice left the cage. In fact, all the mice stayed in the cage. The door, when it was opened, became a terrifying prospect for these mice. These mice, who all they'd ever known is cage living, to look at that open door 
and that wide open field was nothing but terror. See, when Christ comes in to our world, when Christ and his kingdom moves toward our kingdoms, like Herod, it is a scary thing, even when we begin to realize that Christ came to open the door to our cell. Because all of us have kingdoms. We all have kingdoms that we have found a lot of comfort in controlling. We have. I mean, I have. I, I, I love the fact that we live in Nashville, the Athens of the South. Do you know how many universities are in Nashville? Does anybody know? Eight. That may be true. I don't know. Let's just... <laughs> all in favor of eight? Raise your hand. Eight. I don't really know. But there's a ton of them. There's a lot of students here. This is an educated city. In fact, we love education. I love the comfort that comes from knowing stuff, that we're educated people. In fact, let me tell you about the kingdom of my education, the cage of my education. I really oftentimes believe that if there's a problem, if we could just figure out what's wrong, we can fix it. If I could just figure out what the problem is, then I know that we have the power to fix it. And if we don't, if we don't know how to fix it, all we got to do is Google it. If we can just Google it, then we can find we got control here. Another one of the cages that I love about Nashville is the cage of beauty and talent. This is a city that is so full of beautiful people and talented people. Do y'all remember when you could go down 12 South and at Frothy Monkey, there would actually be artists there? Like, you remember that before, you know, the bachelorette parties took over and people with pink cowboy hats were walking up and down to us out? Like, I remember walking in there when it first opened, and um, I won't tell you all the artists that I've seen, but you'd walk in and you would just see beautiful people. And you're like, oh, oh, hey, you're different than us. <laughs> you were beautiful. And there's something powerful about that. And there's something inside of us that holds on to this idea, even in our shame, that if I could be more powerful, if I could be more beautiful, then my world would be better. And we've created this little kingdom called the beauty kingdom. And we judge one another by it. And we live by it. Like we were watching the CMA Awards the other night. I know. It was a slow night. I'm not usually a country music fan. I don't know. And, uh, and we were watching this and Chris Stapleton came on. And have any of you ever seen Chris Stapleton live? It is breathtaking. It is like... I'm telling you, when he, like, he has long hair and a big old beard that's got food in it and stuff. But as soon as he starts to sing, he becomes beautiful. Like, do you agree? No? Okay. Like, you don't look at him as human anymore. You look at him as there is something magical going on with you. And we live in a city that has created a kingdom of talent and beauty. And it's so easy to get caught up in that and start to want that. And here's what the kingdom of talent and beauty says. If you just looked a little better, your life would be a little better. If your talent was just a little bit more, then you would have a little bit more. It's the currency of that kingdom. Some of us have built a kingdom called comfort. That you just, everything in your life is about your comfort. It's about your ease. It's about just every day just being like a pillow that just hugs you, you know? that I don't want anything hard. And here's what's crazy about the kingdom of comfort. It seduces us into thinking this is the best place you could possibly live. And here's what's crazy. When you live in the kingdom of comfort and you get pain, the first thought is what's wrong. Think about that. We are Christ followers. 
We know that the whole purpose of our lives is to love the Lord with all our heart and to love each other like that too. And here's what we know, because we're sane people. We know you love anything, there's going to be pain in it. Anything, there's going to be pain in it. Because just think about yourself. How much pain do people have to go through to love you? Like, it's just true. Love has pain. And love also willingly accepts and invites suffering into its life on behalf of that which it loves. And the kingdom of comfort says, no, 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 no pain here. This is all romance. This is all beautiful. This is no pain, no sacrifice, no suffering. We love to build that kingdom. And I, I mean, I could talk about a lot of kingdoms. I could talk about, do you know how many churches there are in Nashville? There's more than eight, all right? <laughs> I promise you that. Like, you would think that Nashville, as cities goes, that we would be as pretty much close to perfect as we could possibly be. We've really turned religion even into our own little kingdom. We've turned into, you know, if I could just get more devoted, if I could just pray enough, if I could just read the Bible enough, if I could just go to church enough. And here's the whole idea about religion. Religion is not God coming after me. Religion is me coming after God. And what's so comforting about religion is because religion is in my control. Because religion is God lives in this building. Like, think about it. God lives in this building. And we come every Sunday to visit him. But then when I walk out the door, I got his promises to comfort me, but he gets to stay back there. Right? I love being in control. I love God being something I pursue. Because if I'm pursuing it, then I get to decide if I want to pull over and get a latte. Like, hey, you know, I'll pursue you a little bit later today. But i, I got to grab some lunch. I'm hungry, and I'm going to hang out with some people. And then God's something I'm pursuing. It's a very different thing when God's like, buddy, knocking on the door and going, I'm coming after you. That's not very comforting. During this Advent season, Jesus is saying to us, I'm coming. I'm coming. Get ready. And as Christ followers, we pause and we take that very seriously. And we look at that open door on the cage of our kingdoms. And we go to get ready. I have to go outside that door. And let me tell you about this Jesus who opens the door. Do you know that this Jesus, he tells a story about us waiting for his return. In Luke chapter 12, he talks about, uh, I want you to imagine that there are servants that work for a master, and the master goes away, and as Jesus has gone away. And the master goes away, and the servants are all living their lives, preparing the home for the return of the master. And so they're waiting for the master to come back. And listen to what Jesus says happens when the master comes back. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Why will it be good for them? Is it kind of like so that Jesus doesn't go, gotcha, you know? That's how we're supposed to live our lives? Like, like Jesus is really like a burglar that's going to come and steal everything, and we better be ready. Like we shouldn't be doing anything wrong when Jesus shows up. That would be kind of embarrassing, wouldn't it, you know? But it says, no, he says, i tell you the truth. He will dress himself to serve. Jesus will dress himself to serve. We'll have them recline at the table and come and wait on them. It'll be good for those servants who are waiting. Look what he's saying. Here's what's going to happen when Christ returns. Recline at the table. Jesus puts on an apron and he comes and serves us. What kind of master are we worshiping who comes to serve us? 
who comes to wait on us. What kind of God is this? I mean, if you grew up in the church, you go, that's crazy. Because church isn't where you come to be served by God. Church is where you come to serve. Church is where you come to give. And the more you give, the more people around you like you, right? We'll put your name on the back of one of these chairs. We don't have pews here, you know? We'll name one of the glass, you know, stained glass windows after you. I don't mind naming that character up there because that ain't Jesus, but we'll name him after you. Like, we could do that, couldn't we? No, but the Scripture says that's not the Jesus that we serve. The Jesus we serve first serves us. Isn't that crazy? When Jesus was alive and here, he was with his disciples, and before he was crucified, he said, I want to show you something, and he began to wash their feet. The, the second member of the Trinity, the creator of the earth, the world, and the universe. Scripture says that everything in the universe is held together through him, and here he is getting on his knees and washing the dirty feet of a bunch of disciples. And when he got to Peter, Peter said, no way, no how. And he looked at Jesus and said, don't you know who you are? Get up. You're not going to wash my feet. Are you kidding me? I will wash your feet. I will serve you. I will go to the ends of the earth. And listen to what Jesus said to Peter. Unless you let me wash your feet, you will have nothing to do with me. What? Wait a minute. Unless I let you serve me, you will have nothing to do with me? You serving me is a conditional uh, point of me having something to do with you? And the answer is yes. Jesus opens the cage of the kingdoms that we build. And he goes, I'm calling you to come out to serve you. Why? To wake us up. In Ephesians chapter 2, if you've never read it, it talks about what he does when he wakes us up, when he serves us, when he gets us out of these false kingdoms. He says, you were dead, but because of his great love for you, God made you alive. He made you alive, and he did more than that. In verse, Ephesians 2, verse 12 and 13, it says that we were separated from Christ, but because of Christ's work on the cross, once we are far away, now, now we've been brought near. And then just a few verses later, it says, let me describe to you what this nearness is. It's not you've been brought out of that cage. You've been brought now into the family of God. We are brothers and sisters with Christ. It's not just enough that he's brought us into his kingdom. Now he's made us a part of the family. That's how he serves us. And in that service, he wakes us up. There is a story in Greek mythology about this beautiful Young man, matter of fact, he's the most beautiful young man that has ever lived. His name is Narcissist. Have you heard this story? And he's, he's walking through the, the forest and he comes upon this mountain lake that's almost like glass and he looks down to take a drink and he sees himself in the lake. Do you know this story? And he's enamored with himself. In fact, he thinks this is the most beautiful person I've ever seen in my life. And he goes down to try to kiss this beautiful person that he sees in the lake and all he does is get water in his mouth. And then he reaches his arms around to try to hug this, this person that he's now fallen in love with. And he, all he gets is water. And he begins to grieve that the thing that he loves the most, he can't kiss or hold. And he, every day he leans over and tries to kiss and hold that which he has fallen in love with. And the, the story in Greek mythology is that he stops eating 
And he lies down by the lake with a broken heart because he cannot touch and hold the one that he loves and dies. Now, if you would have gone to Narcissus in that moment, yeah, the word applies. If you'd have gone to him at that moment and said, hey, come with me. You, you have been entranced. You've been, you've been fooled. You were deceived. Come with me. We're going to go eat because we're going to rescue you from your love of yourself. Narcissus would have pulled out every weapon that he had and would have defended his right to die at that side of that lake. Do you think we're any different? Then when Christ comes into our kingdoms and he goes, wake up. Wake up. The curse is broken. The spell has been broken. Quit living in your small kingdom in that little cell. You're not a mouse that was born in a cage to live there the rest of your life. The door is open and your Savior who gives you life is now saying, come with me. Come on. Come on, let's go. Hmm. In Luke chapter 12, I'm going to close with this, okay? So hang with me. Luke chapter 12, your gentle Savior who comes into your narcissistic, spellbound life and breaks the curse and now bids you to come with him. He says, and this is in verse 32, do not be afraid. Think about that. You're Jesus. Don't be afraid. Hey, don't be afraid. Can you imagine a life without fear? Don't be afraid. Could you imagine the air, what it would smell like, what your life would be like if fear was no longer the compass that was guiding you through every day? Do not be afraid. I know that door, it's wide open, and you don't know what's outside that door. You, you know in your own little controlled world, you know what's here, and that feels like there's no fear, but there's lots of fear there. And that door feels like lots of fear, but the Lord is saying, hey, the one who came, and gave you life, is saying, don't be afraid. For your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. And Jesus is saying, if you would open your eyes and see that, let me show you what your life would begin to look like. You know what freedom looks like? Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourself that will not wear out a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is saying, if you would dare, if you would dare, come with me. Something profound is going to happen in your life. It says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The city that you live in says, no, where your heart is, that's where your treasure is going to be. You know, what you love is what you'll treasure. And Jesus says, no, 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 that's not the way your heart works. Your heart is you choose what treasure you're going to put in front of your heart, and your heart will look at you and go, yeah, really? That's what I'm supposed to love? Yeah, you love that. And whatever we put in front of our heart, our hearts will wrap itself around it. That's why this Advent season, we're going to pause and say we need a Savior to rescue us from the very thing that our hearts has wrapped itself around so that we can reclaim that we have been set free. You know, I've done a lot of weddings. And uh, here's what's crazy is it's a lot of fun is that like at most weddings, if I can pull this off, I'll try to make it to the bride room uh, and go in and uh, to pray with her. And I've never walked into a bride room and seen her like in sweats, unshowered, you know, smoking a cigarette, 
going, what's about to happen? Like, it never has happened to me. I'm sure it's happened somewhere. But I always walk into the smell of perfume and someone who is dressed in a way that is taking them weeks, maybe even a year to get the dress and the preparation. And they're just, they're glorious. They're like just beautiful and glorious. And I remember the first wedding I ever did, I, I said, okay, we're going to pray over her. This is going to be a profound moment. So I called all the bridesmaids together, and I said, why don't you just sit here, and we're all going to, it's the middle of summer. And I said, let's just all reach out and just put a hand on her. And just, if anybody wants to pray, just go. And I'm like, this is going to be a prayer fest. It's going to be glorious. The Holy Spirit's going to rain down. And I looked down after about five minutes, and the bride is sweating. Uh, middle of summer, all right? <clears throat> there are 12 women around her. It's like a cocoon. It's like a little oven, you know? And have you ever had somebody lay their hand on you in the middle of summer? It's not pleasant. It's clammy. It's gross. And I look, and the bride is doing this right here. And I'm like, oh, yeah, this is, she's about to get a dose of the ghost. She's swaying. No, she's about to pass out. <laughs> I said, whoa, everybody scatter, everybody scatter. And we had to all start fanning, you know, the bride. She was overheating. Why? Because we were messing up glory. What were you doing? We were messing with glory because that glory wasn't for me, even though I was the first person to see her. That glory was for him, right? And his glory was for her. And here's what's amazing, is the minute she walks through that door, all she's looking for, and please don't hold me to this, if you're the person that I married that day, I think all she's looking for is him. And all he's looking for is her in a healthy system. And in that moment when they see one another, they realize they actually see each other in each other. Because there's nothing more beautiful than seeing yourself in the love of another person. And that's what it says in 2 Corinthians. It says, now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And because we are free, we gaze upon him and we are being transformed glory by glory into his likeness. During this Advent season, we start on a dark day where King Herod declares, nobody's taking my kingdom away from me. So we acknowledge that's true about us too. That there's a part of us that rages against Jesus. You cannot have my kingdom. You cannot force me to come out of this cage and live that free. And Jesus is saying, I'm gentle, I'm kind, I'm coming for you, and I'm asking you to live life to the full. And so we pause during this Advent season to move Christ back in front of our hearts and say to our hearts, love that. Love him. Gaze upon the beauty of the groom that loves you.